0: Hi and welcome back, I'm Patrick Polk and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists and industry experts and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Katie Hudson, Executive Director and Head of Australian Equities Research at Yarra Capital. And perhaps less widely known, she's also a Director of the Hawthorne Football Club Katie was once an equities analyst and partner at JB Ware, where she dealt with some of Australia's most well known fund managers. She joined Goldman Sachs in 2008, where she was a portfolio manager and managing director. Nearly five years ago, Yarra Capital spun out of Goldman Sachs to become an independent boutique. Earlier this year, Yarra Capital agreed to acquire Nico Asset Management's Australian business creating one of Australia's largest independently owned Australian fund management businesses with about $20 billion of funds under management. In this episode, we discuss her approach to exploiting inefficiencies in equity markets. She tells us how to avoid a portfolio bomb. And we hear about a high growth small cap with a very bright future ahead of it. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Katie, welcome to the show. It's great to finally be chatting with you.
1: Thanks, Patrick. Great to be with you today.
0: I understand you've had a bit of an interesting journey to where you are today and um, going back a bit, bit of time when you were working on the sell side, you had the opportunity to work with and learn some from some pretty interesting investors. Could you tell us about that and maybe share some of the insights and lessons that you gained from that period in your life?
1: Sure. Thanks, Patrick. So, I, I started my investing career um, on the sell side, as you mentioned, and worked alongside and with some really interesting people as clients. So, at the benefit of uh, some of the um, clients that I had were the founders of companies like Cooper Investors and Green Cape and Paradise, all the people I would characterize as being really smart investors. Um, I think they learnt. I learnt more from them than they learnt from me, um, but it was a great learning environment. I also had the benefit of working with a team at what was then JB Weir, the number one rated uh, analyst team in the market, Uh, and I was a young analyst uh, and I learnt an enormous amount from those people. You know, I think some of the things I learnt were the importance of doing really extensive due diligence uh, on the companies we invest in. Um, the benefit of cash flow very, very important with uh, cash flow at that time, uh, and also at JB Weir at that time, the importance of people and governance uh, and doing the right thing—all the things I think we call ESG today were really the intrinsic to the way we operated at JB Weir at that time.
0: Yeah, people and governance is one that gets a lot of attention now, but as you say, it's—it seems it's something that's only really come up in the last kind of few years. Um, when I go back, even. You know, kind of eight to ten years ago, when I was first um, getting involved with markets, it wasn't really something that was on a lot of investors' radars. But the last two or three years, it's really picked up. It's funny you mentioned Peter Cooper. Actually, he's um, he's been on this podcast before. He's uh, he was one of our our early guests, and uh, and and still uh, a highlight for me having him on the show. Um, but let's skip forward a little bit. June 2008, I'm sure we uh, we all remember that, that period, those of us who have been in the markets. it was it, it, We were just a, a approaching kind of the the worst part of the global financial crisis, the crash in the US, um, and you decided to leave your existing job and start at Goldman Sachs, <laughs> um, a company which I think there was still, if I'm not mistaken, there were still some questions at the time as to whether – it was going to be able to last long term. Could you tell me a little bit about that? You know, were you worried that Goldman might go the way of Lehman Brothers at the time?
1: Yeah, it was certainly an interesting time as an investor, and uh, certainly the first thing I'd say is, as a as an investor, every crisis you go through is an incredible learning experience, and the benefit our team at Yarra Capital has today is we the core of that team was together around that time through the GFC. So that really helped, I think, particularly last year during COVID. Uh, a lot of the lessons we learnt from that time have been hugely beneficial. Um, but specifically to your question about was I worried, um, it was interesting at, at the time Lehman failed, I think it was less than a week later that that Warren Buffett put over $5 billion of capital into Goldman Sachs. So didn't have very long to worry from the time Lehman failed to the time really that uh, Goldman's was recapitalised, uh, and that actually proved to be the turning point. So you could argue it was bad timing. You could also argue it was good timing because, really, from there it was it was onward and upward, uh, both in terms of markets and in terms of our business. Yeah,
0: if I uh, if I recall correctly, actually, no, I know the exact date that uh, that the market bottomed. It's a very famous date, isn't it? It was March 9th, March 9th, 2009. So, yeah, you would have only been, what, like six or nine months from from the bottom there, which I guess would have been, as you say, not a bad time to be getting started. Let's talk about Yarra Capital. It's, I, I, I can't, I'm not actually sure exactly when it started, but I know that it that it, it is one of the lo- longest standing boutiques in Melbourne and I think in the country. If I'm not mistaken, I think it goes back to the early to mid nineties. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so Yarra Capital actually was formed as a business only four and a half years ago, but the team has been together for more than 13 years. So, um, you know, as a team, we've been together for a long period of time. Um, as you mentioned, we were together at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and then four and a half years ago, we did a buyout of the business from Goldman Sachs uh, and became Yarra Capital as a separate entity. So, yes, a long time together, uh, but a relatively young business um, in its current um, form. Ah,
0: oh, that makes sense. Uh, that's uh, I, I had seen that some of the uh, the, the performance history of sev- several of the funds went back a lot further. So I was a bit confused for a moment there when you said uh, only four and a half years. So you've taken some of those funds from your previous employer and you you did a management buyout, did you? Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So those funds uh, have been together, have been formed, you know, as you said, for a long, long period of time, uh, long track record, and, and the team's been managing them for for a long time as well. So today, we're you know we're a business that has um, over twenty billion dollars post uh, the recent acquisition of Nico Asset Management. Um, in terms of the Yara Equities team, um, we're very much long-term inv- fundamental investors, um, very much focused on the due diligence um, in the companies and the industries we invest in. Uh, and we do over 2,000 company meetings a year uh, to undertake that due diligence. So, you know, really, um, really strong track record and um, a really sort of um, heavy focus on understanding the businesses we invest in.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about, the, about that. What are some of the strategies and uh, approaches that you use in your own investing to try and, you know, exploit some of the inefficiencies that you find in the markets?
1: Yeah, so I'm I sort of run the the small cap money. So my big focus is looking after you're investing in small cap uh, companies, uh, and in small caps, I think one of the really big inefficiencies in the market today is actually what I'd sort of characterise as time frame, uh, and that is you know we think there's over 30% of money invested in small caps today that's focused on quant investing, on index investing, or passive investing, so it's chasing that short term momentum, uh, and we think there's a really big inefficiency. Uh, by by focusing on the longer term, by focusing on long-term industry trends, on long-term valuation opportunities um, that we can exploit um, to take advantage of a big part of the market that is very short-term focused Uh, and by having that longer-term timeframe, we think we can buy some really good companies at times when the market is very much short-term focused. And COVID last year was a great example of that. You know, it was a really uh, very short-term driven market. Everyone was focused on the last data point, uh, extrapolating that, and I think that had um, that created a lot of opportunities for us to buy some really good companies and to set our portfolios up for the for the longer term.
0: So, what does long-term mean to you? What kind of time frame or period are you looking at? You know, different people have different definitions of what is long-term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, we we sort of think about a three to five-year period. Uh, so, we're really focused on, you know, which companies can be successful over that time frame, uh, which industries will grow, uh, and thinking about valuations over that time frame, which is very different, I think, to a lot of the market today that tends to be, as I said, very short-term focused uh, and super focused on that last data point.
0: Yeah. how do, I mean, how do you go um, about valuing a business when you're looking out three, five, you know, maybe longer periods it's often it's it's pretty hard to make those kind of long-term forecasts so do you look at the valuation today and the path for where it's going to or are you are you making you know trying to make the best informed uh, you know kind of estimates you can for where a, a business or a company might be in three to five years time
1: yeah, I think that gets back to that due diligence I mentioned earlier. You know, it really helps you build a picture of the long-term trends for that company and the industry it operates in. Um, having a really strong level of conviction about um, the economics of the industry, how sustainable that company's position is, and then using that as a basis to really understand the cash flow. Uh, and I think that's a really... Uh, undervalued skill is truly understanding the cash flow generating capacity of a company. Uh, A lot of companies, um, a lot of investors and analysts focus on profit. Um, We're hyper-focused on the cash flow. Um, We want to understand, can this company generate true free free cash flow uh, and then value that because that is the best best indicator of long-term intrinsic value of a company. Yeah, I I would
0: say... In recent years, kind of last two or three years, the focus has definitely shifted a lot more to, as you say, profits. And I'd say even even accounting profits is not very focused on these days. You see a lot more, you know, EBITDA, and the 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 the, um, the acronyms keep getting longer and longer with more and more things excluded. Um, could you maybe explain the concept of cash flow versus profit for us? Um, and i guess just try and in simple terms explain what the significance is just for those who maybe don't ha- don't ha- come from an accounting background and understand those those distinctions
1: yeah, sure. So, um, you're absolutely right when you say the acronyms are getting longer and more complicated. The other one I think that's one of my favourites is underlying. You know, people often talk about underlying earnings. Where, you know, what is underlying earnings? You know, you're either reporting a number or you're not. Um, and it's, you know, essentially trying to give companies an out to exclude things from their result that may not look quite as flattering. So when we think about cash flow, we're thinking about, um, really understanding, um, the company's ability to um, generate cash after its investment in growth. So we're really thinking about, um, uh, you know, the revenue less costs. We're thinking about trying to understand um, what sort of investment that company needs to make to achieve that that earnings outcome. Uh, And, you know, we're thinking, so we're thinking about things like capital um, and we're thinking about um, how a company may be um, accounting for that. So let me give you an example. Um, there's a number of companies um, that we invest in that generate um, very little profit but actually have very good cash flow. Uh, and the reason for that is they're investing through their, um, through their P&L, through their profit uh, to grow. Uh, and so it may give the appearance that the profit's not as attractive, but actually over time they will generate really compelling cash flow. So it's really trying to unpack um, the elements of the profit to understand whether they can generate um, true free cash flow uh, after that investment. Well, let's
0: look at the other side of the uh, of the equation, which is of course the the losers. I'm sure we all would love to. Avoid losers uh, in our portfolios. It's it's much easier said than done. I've often heard it said that if you're getting six or seven out of ten right, then you're doing pretty well as an investment manager. Um, but increasing that strike rate obviously can really help um, with with your with your returns. I mean, it's 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 great to make money, but it's better not to lose money. Um, So what are some of the strategies that you use to avoid those, you know, those big losers, the portfolio bombs, as I've heard you call them?
1: Yeah, yeah, bombs or blow ups is another one of my favourite phrases. Um, and yeah, I think particularly investing in small companies, uh, avoiding those blow ups is really important because when they go wrong in small companies, they go wrong in a big way. You know, it's not uncommon for you to have more than 50% reduction in a price, share price, on the back of a company having a, a misstep. So, you know, we're really focused on trying to avoid those and I think that can be a really important source of outperformance for us. Um, so, what we try to do to um, you know, to do that is essentially try to understand what we're buying. What's the franchise value? What's the strategic asset value? Uh, and really make sure that we understand that intrinsically, um, because I think when we do that, we understand um, what can go wrong and what the risks are. Um, you would have heard a lot of people talk about balance sheets and debt. Um, I think that's important, but I don't think that's the only thing we look at. There was a company called RCR, which was a contractor that actually went broke, had no debt. So, having no debt is not necessarily a precursor to actually um, avoiding a blow-up. In their case, they actually had very low margins, um, they had very large contracts um, and commitments and they had a lot of bonds and performance guarantees um, that meant when things went wrong from a productivity point of view, they were on the hook and as a consequence, even though they had no debt, they went out of business. So, for us, it's about having appropriate levels of debt for the type of company that you're investing in. Some companies can tolerate debt, others can't. Uh, It's understanding the business economics. So we want to make sure we understand what we're buying. Uh, And for us, it's also about understanding the downside protection. So we often find we invest in companies that might have some land or hard assets, um, have net cash, and that provides us with some downside protection if things go wrong or if the company has a misstep. There's some sort of hard backing there to the asset value. Um, The other thing I think that people often overlook when they're investing in small companies is risk. So, they think about returns and the opportunity, but they don't think about the other side of the ledger, which is risk. And we spend a lot of time thinking about risk, both in terms of the companies we invest in and how we size them in our portfolios uh, to make sure that we're getting both sides of that equation right.
0: Yeah, that example you gave there of RCR Tomlinson was a very interesting case. If if I recall correctly, they'd actually raised a significant amount of capital, what weeks or months before they went into administration it's um i don't know maybe there are more examples if you go back further in history but certainly in as far as my memory goes i've never seen anything like that one
1: <laughs> yeah but i think that just speaks to just making sure you understand all the elements of the economics of the business uh, and what's on balance sheet and what's off balance sheet and it was what was off balance sheet that caught people off guard uh, and, you know, really was the undoing of that company. And you're exactly right. They raised capital. You would have thought they were in good shape. But, you know, clearly this, the orders of magnitude of the contracts that they were uh, exposed to, um, the risk settings of those contracts um, and the commitments they'd made um, made it very difficult for the company to sustain uh, a period of, of um, poor performance.
0: Well. I guess not every every poor investment is going to be a portfolio bomb. There are some things that just kind of peter out, go sideways, or just don't do all that well. Um, Could you tell me about those? You've you've spoken about over-earners in the past. What what is an over-earner?
1: Yeah, so an over-earner is a phrase that we've sort of um, coined to to, um, characterise a company that might be earning above its long-term trend. Uh, and so that might be for a whole range of reasons. Um, COVID has actually um, driven a lot of companies and a lot of industries to have periods of over-earning and in some cases under-earning. And so to give you an example, um, you know, the consumer discretionary sector or retailers at the moment are an area where we're treading very carefully because we think there's a number of companies that are over-earning in there. Um, And to give you a sense of that, you know, the automotive sector, new car sales are probably 9% above the pre-COVID levels. Hardware sales are 15% above pre-COVID levels. And probably one of my favourites is um, furniture and homewares sales are more than 25% above pre-COVID levels. So we're we're not travelling, we're not spending on entertainment, we're staying home and spending on the house. Uh, And that's certainly been a massive boon for companies that operate in those sectors. Uh, And we're just treading very carefully because it may prove to be unsustainable. The other element of that for the retailers is um, when you've got an environment where you have really strong sales, you don't tend to go on sale, uh, and so your gross margins tend to be higher. Uh, And a number of retailers had some benefit over the last 12 months from lower rent. They had some rent relief because of COVID, uh, and a number of cases had some benefit from JobKeeper, so their labour costs were lower as well. So, you add all of those things together, and what they speak to is companies that may be, not all in all cases, but in some cases may be over-earning. Uh, and where those earnings may prove to be unsustainable. And now that may persist for the next six or 12 months, um, given high savings rates, that's certainly possible. But over the time frames we think about, that sort of two, three, four years that we referenced earlier, um, we do think those earnings will normalise and that m- may prove to be a headwind for those companies.
0: Of course, we were originally going to be having this uh, this conversation face to face before we were so rudely interrupted by yet another um, COVID lockdown in Melbourne. I'm curious to know how that might affect your view on you know on this issue and in, on this sector. Obviously, last lockdown we saw a big increase in retail sales for the for the reasons that you've just outlined. Seems to me as though this one might be a little bit different in nature. It's definitely. Uh, people's attitudes seem very different this this fifth time round, I think we're up to now. Uh, so what, what's your take on that? Do you does that uh, has that affected your view at all and in what way?
1: Yeah, I think you're right to point out there's some differences to lockdown 5.0 for the retailers than there were for some of the others. Um, you're not seeing the same level of government government stimulus that you saw with the other lockdowns. Um, you're not seeing the same level of rent relief that the retailers had. So on the cost side, you're probably not seeing the same benefit. Um, having said that, though, savings rates are really high. Uh, the consumer is in good shape. Um, unemployment levels are absolutely outstanding uh, so, all of those elements that are really important to uh, com- uh, consumer spending are absolutely still in- intact. Uh, and so, we would expect for the retailers, while they may be seeing some volatility at the moment, that as we come out of this lockdown, uh, that the consumer will spend uh, and that sales levels will will stay high.
0: Do you think uh, maybe we're, we're getting a bit off topic here and maybe a little bit out of your, your area of expertise? Um but I mean it, it seems as though surely we we have to get more um assistance from the government given the length of the current lockdown that we've seen both in Sydney and and in Melbourne. Um would it would would it, again, like assuming that we do see that, um that the government the federal government comes through and does provide that additional relief, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is is how long does this go on for, not in terms of the restrictions, but if retailers keep getting support, there's continuous lockdowns, does that start to change the, the situation for you?
1: Look, I think, you know, as I said, the the time frames we think about, that sort of longer term time frame, um, you know, it's hard to predict the short term, but I think the, the longer term time frame is pre- is pretty clear to us. Um, a lot of these companies have been earning above what we would sort of characterize as being sustainable levels. Uh and so, you know, whether it's six, 12 or six or twelve months, you know, we think at some point that will normalize and, and that's the that's the issue that we're focused on. Um as you say, anyone who's tried to make predictions about length of lockdowns or government support is Probably been proven wrong over the last twelve months, uh, so we're not we're not in the business of trying to forecast those. Um, we're trying to you know we're in the business of trying to forecast um, out over a time frame that we think can make sense for our investors.
0: Well, let's uh, let's move on to a different sector. Um, technology is while it may not form a massive part of large cap portfolios, it, it, there's a fairly limited amount of tech stocks in the in the ASX twenty and fifty. In the small cap area where you operate, it is a much bigger portion of the of the index. Um, But you know, you've made the point that you're very valuation conscious. Uh, Choosing my words there carefully, not suggesting you're a value investor, Uh, but you are clearly very valuation conscious. How the prices in that sector? I mean, as somebody. Just speaking for myself here, who is I would also consider myself valuation conscious, I find it really hard to approach this sector because so many of the valuations just don't make sense to me. So could you maybe give us some insights as to how you approach the sector and whether you find opportunities in that sector?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you're right to say we're valuation focused, um, but we're absolutely happy to buy companies that we think are, you know, really strong companies that are on a, what appears to be a higher multiple. So, that doesn't scare us. Um, but what's been really interesting over the last few years is, you know, great companies and average to poor technology companies of all under the technology banner – all traded up together. Uh, And so that's really been on the back of an investor focus on sales growth and on sales multiples, um, which we think is actually a flawed way of looking at these companies. Um, For us, when we look at the technology sector, what we're trying to understand is, is the sales growth, but also the durability of that sales or revenue. So, we're trying to understand, you know, how sticky it is, how, um, how long those companies can have confidence that they'll get that revenue, uh, and also we're trying to understand the economics of the business because not every technology company will grow to be a profitable technology company. So there's a lot at the moment that are losing money. There's a lot that are break-even. Um, some of those will go on to be really successful and profitable companies. And for us, it's trying to unpack the difference between those that will never make money and those that will scale profitably. And that's where it comes back to really understanding the economics of the business model. Um, so maybe I could bring that to life for you. So Appen is a really good uh, company. We think it's a, you know got a really interesting product, but it's got what we would characterise as a relatively short duration revenue. So over a 12 or 18 month view, um, they don't have a lot of visibility on what their revenue will look like um, over that timeframe. Yet going back um, 12 months or so, you were having to pay sort of 10 or more times sales revenue for that company. So that's like paying forward 10 times ten years of sales for a company that doesn't have a lot of visibility out beyond sort of 12 or 18 months for its revenue. Um, that relationship just didn't make sense to us and for that reason we didn't own that company. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we own um, – shares in a company called Megaport. Um, They've got mission-critical software. Um, Every month of every year, they know what their revenue is going to be because their customer base is very, very sticky. Uh, They pay month in, month out, uh, and their churn is extremely low as a consequence. So, we know with a very high degree of confidence on a one, two, three, four-year basis what their revenue will look like and that's what we would characterize as being very durable revenue. Um, it's also very high margin revenue. So the economics of the business um, are really compelling as they grow. So that that's the sort of revenue we're happy to pay, pay a very high multiple for uh, because it's it's very long duration, it's very sticky, and it generates a high margin. So as they grow, they should scale to be a very profitable company over time.
0: Do you actually consider the multiple that you're paying when you're making those decisions or are you forecasting out those cash flows you know out you said you have pretty good visibility on it you know are you forecasting them out as far as you can and discounting them back to today or, or do you do you actually pay close attention to the the ref, the multiples that you refer to there
1: yeah, so we're very much forecasting the cash flows, um, trying to understand how that business will scale, whether it will scale profitably, uh, and then what the growth opportunity looks like against that backdrop. Um, that you can convert that into a sales multiple. So you know we might think about it across both the, a discounted cash flow perspective, but we also might think about it as a sales multiple. But where we're paying a high sales multiple, the key message is making sure that we've got. Um, really good visibility on the duration of the revenue and how that business will scale to profitability.
0: One company I wanted to ask you about was um, Nanosonics. It had a pretty challenging period through COVID. Um, I don't want to get too much into the details of what that was. I'm sure you understand the company uh, uh, much better than I. So could Maybe we could just start off, could you explain what some of the challenges they have faced over the kind of previous 12 to 18 months, uh, what those challenges were and how they've um, kind of addressed them?
1: Yeah, sure. So, maybe it's worth just um, taking a step back. So, Nanosonics has a disinfection technology um, that is predominantly used in a hospital setting. So, um, they're the market leader in, with this technology. They've got a really strong business in North America and they're rolling out in Europe, in the UK, and, and uh, about to start rolling out in Japan. So, a really a global um, technology opportunity. Um, but as you can imagine, when COVID struck, um, they need access to hospitals, to buy, uh, both sell the product and install it. Uh, So access to hospitals was um, super restricted uh, during the last 12 months. And of course, that's had a big impact on their ability to sell the new device um, and access the hospital. So what we're seeing now in the Northern Hemisphere is all of that is is changing. Uh, Access to hospitals is reopening as people have been vaccinated. Um, uh, The Northern Hemisphere economies are getting back to business um, and they're now getting that access to the hospitals and growing their revenue again. Uh, which is what we'd expect to see so that's a really good example of actually that time frame inefficiency we talked about earlier where uh, you have some short-term impact on the business that's not changing the longer-term opportunity Um, from our perspective there um, that revenue is deferred not lost uh, and so we think they will absolutely regain that over time and where the share price is weak, on um, the back of everybody focused on that short-term disruption, you know, that feels like a great opportunity to, for us to buy a really strong long-term growth franchise.
0: Well, that actually brings us to the end of the main part of the interview. Um, but I have three favorite questions that I like to ask every one of my guests. So, if you've got another probably 10 minutes to stick around, we can jump into those now.
1: Sure. Happy to. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Could you tell me about a book that you've read that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? What's the book and why, did you, why do you like it?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. So when I first started out in investing, you were either a Warren Buffett fan or a Ben Graham fan, and that was about it in terms of books that people could read or information that, that people could draw on for their investment expertise. So over the last 20 years, there's been a huge proliferation of, of really great investing books. Um, I must confess to being a bit of a Howard Marks fan, um, the most important thing was was one of the sort of pivotal books I read that really um, set out very clearly the foundations of of the way way he invested and a lot of the things that he talks about really still resonate for me. It's interesting though, over the last sort of probably three years or so, Um, You know, I've shifted a lot in terms of the things that I focus on and a lot of the the focus for me is on podcasts and things where they talk about, you know, behavioural elements, about leadership, about mental strength. So, I've just listened to a podcast recently from Ben Crow, who's um, Ash Barty's sort of mental strength coach. Uh, and, the, the, you know, the mental strength elements that he talks about are just as relevant to sport as they are to investing. So I, I find I spend more time uh, listening and, and thinking about some of those elements these days rather than the, the sort of fundamentals of investing, but that might just reflect where I am in my career.
0: Well, uh, as always, I'll put links to both the book and the podcast into The Wire for, for this podcast. So to our listeners, if you would like to jump on livewiremarkets.com, um, just navigate to The Wire for this podcast and you'll find a couple of links in there. I'm always a fan of Howard Marks. The, it's funny, my, my two favorite books, which I'm sure any regular listener to the show will know by now as I've repeated them uh, quite consistently, are uh, Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, and um, How it Marks the Most Important Thing, and both of which have been mentioned in the last couple of weeks. So, it's always, always great to hear people plugging my favourites. I have to admit, though, I still haven't read Mastering the Market. I, uh, I'm i a little bit behind on that one. I have to have to, have to catch up.
1: <laughs> That's a complicated one. You know, It talks more about market cycles. And actually, the, the given where we are in the economic cycle, it's probably a good time to read that one as well. So, But it's definitely more complicated.
0: Yeah, I I do really enjoy the simplicity of the messages in in um in the most important thing. I think it it's very much one of those things. Uh, simple doesn't mean mean easy.
1: <laughs> yeah, completely agree.
0: Could you tell me about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from that experience?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think probably the interesting one to draw out is actually probably my first recommendation as an analyst. Um, I was fortunate enough to pick up Cochlear. Uh, it was my first key buy recommendation as an analyst Um more than twenty years ago, it was actually before the concept of the industry or competitor calls even existed. It might have even been before the internet, because I remember um, going to a lot of trouble to track down the um, the phone numbers of their two global competitors and cold calling them uh, and building a relationship, um, which is really the foundations of what's you know what's now thought of as very contemporary due diligence and the work that we all do for every company we invest in. But I remember at the time that was just a Really challenging thing to do was actually to find the phone numbers for these companies—one um, in Europe and one in the, in America. Um, but the, you know, so the big thing for me that 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 validated was just how important it was to really do the due diligence, to really understand the company you're investing in, uh, and to get those um, insights outside the conversation with the company. And that's a big a big piece of the work we do at Yara Capital is doing that. Uh, industry due, due diligence to make sure we understand the companies um, outside the conversation with the CEO, particularly in investing um, in small caps. Every CEO has got a good story to tell. You need to validate um, whether it's it's credible um, outside that conversation. So just getting back to Cochlea, so you know Cochlea was you know in a large addressable market. It had technology leadership, um, but the second um, really strong insight from that. And learning was very much around understanding the business economics um, because Cochlear was in a big market but it also had very high margins uh, it could grow organically through and self-fund that growth you'd be amazed at how few companies can do that uh, and what all of that added up to was a company that generated really really strong free cash flow it's a theme I keep coming back to today but it's one that I think is super super important for investors um, and you know to give you a sense of that cochlear today pays more in dividends than the share price was at the time when I first picked it up. So that gives you a sense of how the benefit of, um, you know, really strong free cash flow can then compound over time um, to be a great investment. Uh, And so that was the other learning for me was just the economics of the business and really just that first uh, experience and understanding the power of, of companies that can generate true free cash flow.
0: I imagine it's outside of your mandate now being a small cap uh, manager. I don't think Cochlea counts as a small cap anymore. Um, but I'm curious, how long did you hold on to it for?
1: Well, I, I wasn't in the, in those days we weren't allowed to buy the companies that we were following so unfortunately I wasn't able to buy it myself but fortunately you know a lot of a lot of our clients were able to buy it um, and it's been a you know obviously been a fantastic investment for them uh, and I've you know watched with pride as that company has, has grown over time um, and you know for for young investors getting into the market it's just a great example of buying great companies and letting compounding do the work for you because essentially that's you know that's what's happened you know that company company has compounded growth, uh, and over time, that makes it a great investment.
0: I have one final question for you, but before I ask this question, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there, puts all of their money in a single stock, and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking, and hopefully, a little bit of fun. So, with that being said, if the markets were going to close for five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be?
1: Yeah, so that is a really good question. Um, Look, I think one of the best companies in the Australian market is a company called Fisher and Paykel Healthcare. They have a global leadership in a respiratory um, technology, which has actually been a big beneficiary of COVID, um, unfortunately. Um, you know, they've had, they already had really strong um, growth in their business pre-COVID. COVID has served to accelerate the adoption of their product. If you said to me over the next one to two years, how would that company go? I think there's probably a bit of a headwind for them as they cycle that strong COVID growth. Um, but on a five-year view, I'm very confident they will be a much larger company than they than they are today. Um, as I said, they've got global leadership in their technology. The market opportunity for that technology is, a, is probably 20 times their current revenue. So they've got a long, long runway for growth and um, fantastic management, really exceptional um, manufacturing capability and uh, I think they'll be a long-term winner. But you'll have to close your eyes for that five years because, as I said, as they cycle that COVID bump, um, it might be a little bit uh, challenging for them. But on that that five-year view, um, I'm very confident they'll be a, a much larger company.
0: It's always a hard bit, isn't it? Keeping your eyes closed because the markets don't close.
1: <laughs> Correct, yes.
0: Oh uh, Well, Katie, thanks so much for chatting to me today. It was great to hear your thoughts and to learn a little bit more about Yarra Capital. I hope to speak to-, to you again sometime.
1: Pleasure, thanks for the opportunity, Patrick. Really great to catch up and stay well.
0: Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.